Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg and Life Live. I'm really glad that you're here. And today we're going to be looking at why did Lot's wife turn into a pillar of salt? I only laugh because it's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let me invite you on in to talk about this very strange, potentially disturbing topic. I guess that's just the vibe that we have here. But what I'm thinking and what I'm hoping and what I really believe is that we're going to come out of here with a sense of the love and truth that's there, just like there's love and truth in everything even if it's hidden. And who better to help us unearth that stuff than our good friend, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor of the New Century Edition. Thanks for hanging out, man. Hey, Curtis. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. And I mean that. I mean, you know, I have to say that because we're on camera, but I really do. It is like, I do look forward <laughs> to our chats. Um, Me sorry, too. A little sentimental right now. And everyone out there, it's so cool having you guys here as well. Please like and subscribe. That makes it so that our channel gets to the next person. All right. So, and to try to extend a little bit of, of goodwill and, and show in good faith that we do care about you here. We, this show, as all our Swedenborg and Life live shows are, is directly in response to a question that we got from one of you. This is, uh, we did a show about the meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Which is in itself this, this really uh, intense story that a lot of people have a lot of clashing interpretations of. So we unpacked what's the Swedenborgian interpretation of that. So in that episode, the meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's such an expansive story. And the way that Swedenborg describes the internal sense, there's so much to it that we didn't even have time for this very important part of it. And that it was expressed here by Jay Norris. What about the woman who turned into a pillar of salt? I remember seeing a painting of that as a child and it freaked me out. Mm. And I, I like that, that I, you included that second part, Jay, not that I'm glad that you had that trauma, but I think it underscores the point that I was making in the beginning, which is when we talk about religious stuff, particularly biblical religious stuff, then it is like, okay, we're all going to come in, but you, you do gather around and read some pretty disturbing things, right? And uh, there's definitely times when I've been in like a church setting and there's something biblical being talked about. And I think, of, is this all right for kids to be hearing this? You know? So, yeah. so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And it's those, it's those most vivid stories that often get told to children because there's so much stuff in the prophets that you can't, you know, it's, it, it would be hard for a child to understand. But what a disturbing image you know, to be turned into a pillar of salt. And yet, yeah. hey, kids, check out this cool story, you know. Right, right. So the best we can do here is try to get us or maybe our inner child, which is the part of us saying, like, how could, how could this be happening in something that's supposed to be from God? And see if we can't find out, like, okay, what's, what's really underneath the surface here that does satisfy us there? So to answer this question, let's start by getting into the state of mind. Uh, we're going to do our icebreaker. Let's break the ice. What gets us thinking in the direction of the internal sense of this story? We'll be answering this here on the screen, but if all of you want to leave a comment with your answers, we'd love to be able to go in and ha let other people who come to watch the show go see how would other people answer this as well, because it should be that it's, it's a true part of life. So everybody has their own unique perspective on it. So we always appreciate when you guys interact. So the question is, Dr. Jonathan Rose, do you feel less compassion for people when you focus on differences of opinion or philosophy, what are ways to get past that? It's a great question. And I, if I'm really honest with myself, I, I do feel less compassion. Like 
if I get really involved in the things that I am convinced are true, and I've spent a lifetime searching for these things, and now I, I know that for a fact, then when you see people who are totally operating under a different mindset or something, it's like, what are they doing? You know, they're, they're crazy or something. And, and, um, and that's where a lot of division comes in. And so as far as ways to get past that, I think just realizing, well, wait, man, this is just my thought. I don't know what's absolutely true. You know, God is full of unfathomable wisdom. I've only been on the planet for a few years, you know, and I should extend the same courtesy to other people. Uh, we're all just sort of getting going with this whole being alive thing. So to give people some slack and think about it from there standpoint, you know, try to lift up to a higher, more compassionate view. Yeah, I love that. It's really, it is true that having differences of opinion, it does sort of automatically make you think, oh, this person is a caricature. They, they are just that opinion, especially mm. if it's, and it gets even more difficult. I think you make a great point about, look, everybody's coming to their their conclusion and there's a lot of really reasonable disagreement but even when it gets to places where i see people as like look this person has a, a, a truly dangerous or despicable idea and mm. they are bringing this into the world and this is a problem um how do i not even even though i can never know 100 percent that i'm right in there wrong but i really feel convinced of it what do i do then that makes it so that I can uh, not not fall into this total dismissal of them as a being. And I think really that the ways to get past it, you've got to have some of what Swedenborg provides. This idea that that ideas are really coming into us from heaven or hell. And that even people who are wrapped up in the worst motivations and the worst beliefs, they were sort of taken hostage by those. Those came from outside influences, grabbed them, even though they agreed to participate. In some ways, they were kind of tricked into it and that hell is manip trying to manipulate everyone into holding those beliefs. That's such an awesome perspective. Uh, it's a really spiritual way of looking at it. Um, yeah, this all flows in. Yeah, and I'll let you know if I ever get to be able to actually think of that consistently. <laughs> but, <laughs> good. All right. It's hard to think of in real time, you know. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, for it sure. takes a little reflection later. Right. All right. So now with that in our minds and looking forward to reading all of your comments and seeing what it is for you, let's begin. We're going to look at the story of Lot's wife, the pillar of salt, and the internal sense. We'll begin here with our setup. To begin, if we're going to make any progress on sifting through the internal sense of the story here and finding what really makes this divine and relevant and loving, we have to be able to get past, we have to make a genuine effort to get past the literal sense of the Bible. Because as we saw, the earthly sense is really vivid and really disturbing. And it's so hard to really think of, oh, this is a teaching allegory rather than something we need to be disturbed about in terms of how the characters are faring in it. And the outer part of our mind is going to want to focus on that. And it's hard not to. We actually devoted a whole show to this just recently. Jesus wants us to seek the deeper meaning of his words. Mm. So it's, it's a real thing for us to get past. Yeah, that's right. And um, so trying to wrestle with biblical stories, lots of people have tried it uh, uh, purely on that literal level. It's just not going to work uh, it, in this story. 
it seems like God is unfair and suddenly just zaps somebody for doing something as simple as turning around and facing in a different direction. And so they, they don't make sense. They don't seem fair when you approach it from that angle. And I love the way that resolution comes when you lift up and look at it spiritually. You remember the divine love. You see it as an allegory. Uh, it's so helpful in, in, a, in a case like this and most of the Bible stories. Well, and really critical, I would have a hard time being around the Bible if I didn't have this understanding, you know, that Swedenborg provides of correspondences, because, you know, it, it just this amazing feeling to once you start to dig into what the details mean and what the story is actually saying versus what it seems to be saying. It's just it's just like a it's just a miracle. It just feels so good. So hopefully we give you yeah. a little bit of that here. And the key to this is to see every character in this story as an aspect of your mind. Mm. This is a universal story told by the Lord who is omnip omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. So that means everywhere and all time as well. So everything the Lord is saying applies to everyone everywhere at any time, which is seems unbelievable. But as you start to unpack how this is a description of each of us, you start to see a hint of that. So mm. you see these stories as being about stages of our spiritual development, because this is something everybody's going through. Not everyone's maybe around when a particular city is getting destroyed, but everybody's going through these stages of spiritual development. Then we can start to see this divine truth shine through. And mm. to make it tangible, since it sounds like I'm just, this is woo, let's look at an example of correspondence and we'll start with salt. Is right, the salt, mm. this key role here. And what is salt trying to portray here? What is it corresponding to? Well, let's, for that, you've got to look at the nature of salt itself. What is it? What is it in life? What does it do? And with as with most things, I'd say everything, it has sort of a positive and a negative role in life. So you think about the positive effects of salt first. Salt's got a lot of good stuff going for it. You've got to have salt in your body. It's crucial to have salt in our body for fluid balance, nerve transmission, muscle function, all of mm -hmm. which are pretty cool things to have going. That's like the essential functioning. It also, as we all know, I mean, most of us think of salt as coming out of our little shakers because it enhances the flavor and texture of food. It also is, acts as an important preservative for food. I mean, even before refrigeration, salt was a big deal in getting food yeah, to last. That's right. Uh, it acts as a binding or thickening agent. It lowers the freezing point of water, which I'm pretty sure that's why we're talking about you salt the road so that your car doesn't slip around. It's because that's salt right. can do that. And it's also hel helpful with cleansing and purification and healing. You think about if, you know, at times if you're feeling like a, you're, something hurts in your throat or your mouth, you can gargle with salt water. It does a lot of cool stuff for yeah, us. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing quite like it. Um, and yet, as we all know, uh, and I agree with everything you just said, but there's yeah, also negative effects coming here. <laughs> yeah, right. That uh, too much salt can be very damaging to the heart, blood vessels, kidneys. Uh, too much in our diet can cause calcium loss in our bones. Uh, if you throw it on fields and plants, uh, you can actually ruin them. You can see in the Bible that this was an ancient way of ruining an enemy's land was to salt the fields. And we see a modern day equivalent of this, not that it's deliberate, but when people put so much salt on the roads and then it sprays on the vegetation, you know, the vegetation all turns brown and dies. It has a dehydrating effect. And obviously we've all experienced that too much of it ruins the flavor of food. 
and makes it inedible. So the same thing that's like essential in a certain amount, just a little too much. And it's like, oh, you know, it's bad. It's shocking that turning point from like, this is really good to, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> oh, I overdid it. <laughs> and and uh, I think it's true. Don't cook say that that once there's too much salt, there's almost nothing you can do to, to dial that back. You know, I mean, you try to water it down or something, but it, it can be uh, devastating. And Swedenborg actually talks about this dual correspondence of salt and even says that it applies to other things as well in understanding scripture. Here's Secrets of Heaven 2455. He says, many words in scripture have two meanings, positive and negative. And this is true also of salt. In a positive sense, it means a desire for truth. Hmm. You think of the way that salt makes you thirsty or something. In a negative oh, sense, corresponds to truth. That's so cool. Right, right, right. It's cool, isn't it? In a negative sense, it means stripping away any emotional effect truth has, like making ta- truth tasteless, in effect. That is, it means stripping truth of anything good in it, like destroying it. Isn't it that if you, you know, you've got water, which is truth, it's hydrating, but you put some salt in it, it's no longer hydrating. Yes, that's right. You can't drink salt. You can't drink uh, seawater to slake your thirst. Right? It just make you thirstier. Okay, so we have this dual correspondence of salt, which everything has a dual correspondence. So, with that in mind, let's look at another quote about salt with a preview of today's Bible story in it. This is Secrets of Heaven ten thousand three hundred. Oh. Why Don't not? That's a lot of translating you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are a few passages in there. So here he says, salted symbolizes the longing truth has for goodness. Truth should have a longing for goodness because such a longing is capable of uniting the two. You know, Curtis, it makes me think of how there's a marriage that Swedenborg talks about between truth and goodness. And it's kind of weird, but amazing to think of truth as actually having a longing for goodness. You know, these two abstract qualities in a way, but it's kind of cool. It's a little bit romantic, but I, one way I can think of it tangibly is if you're learning these ideas, uh, you know, higher truths, it should be that that's aching for uh, a way to help the human race with them, you know, and that's when it's really closing the loop. It's true when you learn, like if you're, I don't know, this may not be a good example, but if you're learning a foreign language, doesn't something in you want to try speaking that with somebody you know, because like, why should you just know it and never use it? Or if you suddenly figure out a new way to do something cool, like you want to show somebody, you want to use that knowledge. So that truth is longing to come forth in some kind of action. That's great. I was getting ready to edit that out of the final cut, but it's good. Let's keep it. (laughs) The more truth yearns for goodness, the more it unites with goodness. Salt takes this symbolism from its connective nature because it bonds everything together, which is how it, which is how it makes everything taste good. Just as the longing of truth, that's my dog walking by. <laughs> Just as the longing of truth for goodness creates a bond between them, the longing of falsity for evil breaks their bond. And whatever breaks their bond also destroys them. So in mm. a negative sense, salt symbolizes the destruction and annihilation of truth and goodness. And here we get here we get to Lot's wife. 
just okay. like we said, we're going to talk about it. And this is where he's mentioning it as an example of this phenomenon. The fact that Lot's wife was changed into a pillar of salt for turning her face towards Sodom and Gomorrah symbolizes the annihilation of truth and goodness. Because to turn one's face towards something is, in an inner sense, to love it. Oh. In a positive sense, salt symbolizes a longing of truth for goodness and therefore something that unites. And in a negative sense, a longing of falsity for evil and therefore something that destroys. So that's helpful to um, the fact that what you turn toward is, is something that you love. There you get into something like to simply turn your body in a different direction and that, that's a terrible thing to do. That just seems ridiculous on the face of it. But if it's what you're loving, that starts to help a little bit with this whole situation. And this basic symbolism, uh, we went through some of these elements because we did a show about the meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that, that's the direction in which she was facing when she turned into a pillar of salt. Right. And so let's go through a few of these uh, from that prior show. And this Sodom, is a good, this is a good uh, sorry to cut in, but for, for those of you who haven't seen a previous show, this is a good initial illustration of the kind of roles characters and elements can play correspondentially. Yeah, and it, I know that it's it, it's taken me so long, and I still don't know that I f understand it. You know, it, it takes a long time to wrap your head around these things because you're so used to just thinking, well, that's just a place uh, right. in the Old Testament or something. But uh, w when you start to load these into your head, just just give it a while because they they start to make sense and and teach me something. You know, uh, Sodom. Like what was so bad about Sodom? Sodom got destroyed with fire and brimstone. Sodom is self-centeredness. That's what that means. And Lot, who is this person who was living there, and we're just trying to load these into your head because we'll talk about a little bit of the story in a bit. So just if you don't know who Lot is or whatever, just, just you know, ride loose in the saddle. Um, Lot in an earthly sense is, I'm sorry, Lot is an earthly sense of what is good, but it's a, a sense of how to treat other people that doesn't have much depth. It's not very nuanced or, or spiritual. It's just sort of a simplistic view. And the angels who come to rescue Lot and his wife and his daughters are an image of the Lord working to rescue our outer self goodness and beliefs from the trap of self-centeredness. Does that start to hit home a little bit? Uh, we, we get easily sort of, stuck in a kind of self-centeredness and the Lord is trying to rescue that. So the angels come and try to talk Lot and his wife and daughters into leaving where they are. Yep. And it's starting to go from arbitrary to relevant where yes. you can say, so, so you don't, so God is against this particular city, but it's just a city. You know, there's probably all kinds of different people who live there. It doesn't make any sense and it doesn't apply to me, but if you're talking about self-centeredness, which is, oh, and, and self-centeredness in the way Swedenborg describes as e extreme um, antisocial, this, like the root of evil, right. sort of like, I want my will to dominate other people, the way he describes it in a whole, this is something in us that is relentlessly oriented against our own best interests, although we don't realize it, and the best interests of the human race. So yes, it always makes sense that angels are pulling us away from that. That is always happening for everyone all the time. So let's let's now look at one one specific part of that Sodom and Gomorrah story, and keeping this symbolism 
in mind as we go through it. So what you just learned, but let's add some new characters that are, or some new, yeah, it's new characters that are specific to this. Right. And, and the nature of the way Swedenborg explains these biblical stories, there's so much in there. We did a whole show on Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't have time to get into Lot's wife at all or, or these, these things. So here's a little bonus to that. That's right. That's right. So we'll, we'll give you Lot again. So this earthly level or external sense of goodness without depth, right? So if, you're not, if you think now of Lot, not as some guy, but as that, and as that exists in any person, then let's think about what's Lot's wife. What is the wife of that external sense of goodness? This is mm. the beliefs, the faith or, and truth that are married to earthly level goodness. Because every motivation set we have has justifications or ideas that accompany it. And the two are distinct, but they're married together. So Lot's wife is those beliefs that reinforce I, I, that external I, sense of goodness. I, I love that. There's there's something like when people get into a 12-step program, a lot of what has to happen is that the thoughts that they had been having before that supported the addiction have to be swapped out for different thoughts. And therefore, you get a lot of slogans and other things that help in, in those situations. So that's how like a thought, stinking thinking, they call it sometimes, you know, right. that thought is propping up that behavior. So Lot's wife, is like that belief structure or that thought that that was just looking at things in in the external way. And so what, if you're looking at those two as a couple in us, what do they produce? What are Lot's daughters? The affection for earthly level goodness and beliefs. It's a love of that sort of life. And and what's what's crucial to point out here is that that sort of superficial uh, superficial, shallow system of morality can easily be twisted, as we'll be seeing, into uh, tribal us versus them. It's not, it's not actually genuine love for other people. It's more just a love for your own group, which when it, gets, uh, when it starts to lose its love can get really deadly. So that's why this stuff that seems relatively innocuous can, can set us up to be really problematic. It, okay, it's so right next door to, to, to self-centeredness. I mean, that's kind of where it lives. Right. And it's, it's sort of a self-centered perspective. Yeah. It's clogging up the space that genuine love is supposed to occupy. And so yeah. you have these characters, these people, and they're supposed to go to the mountains. It wasn't, a mountain is just like a piece of rock. What's it matter if they go to the mountains? But a mountain is heavenly love which is a love for God and the neighbor. So it's telling those parts of us, go to the mountains, go into actual love. And the city, don't go back to the city, which is doctrine or a belief system. If you don't, and I'm getting a little ahead of us here, but just saying, if you don't have love at the core, but you have a belief system at the core, we've all seen what that can do. If, if you're just yeah. hanging with the principles without love for anyone, it becomes vicious. Yeah, judgmental, self-centeredness, even uh, violent uh, sometimes. Yeah, right. How, how much religious violence is there in the world where people are very mm. much acting according to a belief framework? But if, you no expressed it, if, if you expressed it uh, numerically, it would be a non-zero number. That's right. That's you know? right. Thank you for that math lesson. <laughs> yes. So we have um, then the plane which they're on is the teachings of that belief system. And finally, the pillar of salt beliefs that have turned away from heavenly love. Because remember Lot's wife looked away from the mountains toward the city when this happened. 
That's right. And so they were living in a very low part of the country in this plain, you know, not in the mountains. And this shallow of uh, level of goodness and the kind of beliefs that go with that, which is just like, this is a good person because they think like I do. That's a terrible person because they think differently or, or you know, those kind of things, right? Oh, that are just trying, very external. You're tying the uh, icebreaker question into it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even, even now, I'd sort of forgotten back when we were doing that. But absolutely, that that's what it leads to. Because if there's not right, if there's not love there, then you find well, look, somebody's in the wrong. So it's it's war. Yeah, and so somebody who doesn't look like me, or somebody who doesn't talk like me, or what, what all all that stuff, right? It all comes from that that relatively external way of looking at what human beings are. And that's vulnerable to being influenced by negative emotions and false thinking, you know, how much of that kind of stranger anxiety is there in our world. And so God sends a message to our, you know, you put this all together. It's like God is sending a message to our lower self mind that we have to escape from that Sodom of self-centeredness even though our lower ego is reluctant to leave because, hey, it's home. It's where I've always lived. This is what I believe to be true, you know? But right. no, no, got to head for the mountains. Oh, man. And when we're, when we're trapped in that Sodom of self-centered, I'm right, they're wrong, there's, there's pleasure in that. It feels good to have enemies yeah. try to vanquish them, and, and it feels good to try to build yourself up. There's a, there's a lot trying to pull us. Oh, hey, no pun intended. A <laughs> lot trying to pull us. Uh, back towards that. So keeping yeah, that's point. right. Yeah, right. And there's a nice kind of clarity of like, I know who the good people are, you know, or, or whatever, you know. That's right. A fa false uh, simplification of things, which just leads to deepening misunderstandings and, and divides. So right. we've set up our symbolism, right? And I know it's a lot, but... Oh, hey, sorry. Okay. So there's a little alarm on my phone. Don't worry, I got it fixed. Uh, proves it's real. Keeping that symbolism in mind, here's the text from Genesis. Uh, and then we'll go, so we'll go through the story, and then we're going to give you a way to understand the deeper message to all of us. So we've taken all that information we just gave you and what Swedenborg says about it and synthesized it into a summary so that you can get at once the, liter the external and internal meanings. Sounds good. Should I take the literal meaning here? I, I would love it. Yep. Great. And it happened when they brought them outdoors that the angel said, escape on your soul. Don't look back behind you and don't stop anywhere on the plane. Escape to the mountain to keep from being consumed. And Lot's wife looked back behind him and turned into a pillar of salt. Doesn't it just immediately change how you feel just that line escape to the mountain to keep from being consumed with without the mountain mm. meaning something deeper it is just this simplistic survival story and it paints this bleak picture of life where it's okay you're just trying to get physical safety that's all god can tell you about but then they say look escape to the mountain knowing that's love escape where you are to the mountain i mean that's giving me goosebumps just think about it. it's yeah it's change for me and, and when you when you look at it just in that external light, God seems pretty awful. I mean, yes, angels are sent to try to get them out of town, but like how arbitrary it is, is it 
that you have to be here and not there because I'm going to toast this whole valley or something. You know, it, it's just weird. Why can't God just pick you up and plop you on the mountain? It's yeah, just right. a basic place. Right. But if you're seeing that the mountain, that, that everything about our motivation, that is what human freedom is. So it's voluntary. We can't, God cannot force right. us to love something we won't love. That, that is That's right. That is eternally ours. To it's our choice. That's, that's why right. you have angels just urging. And that's yeah. what that's what spiritual teaching is. It's urging you. You flee to the mountain. Flee to the mountain. But nobody can make us go there. We can choose. You know, is it the city oh. or the mountain? So that's right. the, the inner or paraphrased, uh, the inner sense of this paraphrased by us would go like this if you took Swedenborg stuff and put it together. So here's the story of, of Lot's wife and the pillar of salt. God pulls our earthly selves out of self-centeredness. And says, for the sake of your eternal life, escape from a self-absorbed point of view. We're mm. trapped there. Don't look back to belief systems that support that point of view. Okay. Oh, there we go. It's so mm. true. It's so true that when you make some progress in your life, if you go back to your old way of thinking about life, it just lends itself to you getting back in your same ruts. I mean, I, I, I fall back in the city all the time. Don't linger over the rationalities and justifications escape to love of God and the neighbor to keep from being spiritually destroyed. But if we allow our beliefs to turn away from higher love, those beliefs will become stripped of goodness and devoid of spiritual life. Like the, the beliefs being Lot's wife. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Stripped of goodness, devoid of spiritual life. That, 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 yeah, is that betrayal of what happens to our beliefs, if we take these harmful actions, that's what the pillar of salt is symbolizing. So, mm. and I mean, in the literal sense, it's so drastic that Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt for looking backwards. Looking over your shoulder is, we just do it a, a million times a day. Well, that's that'd yeah. be quite a lot, but we do it a lot. It's, it's just a physical turning. What's the difference? Oh, but, and if, if, if you've lived somewhere and you raised your children there and, you know, I mean, of course you look back, right? I mean, how can you just sort of walk away? Right. The story has to be allegorical or else it just hinges on these little twitch reactions. Or what's the moral of the story? Is it like, how tightly can you obey commands in a crisis? Is that like the, what morality the, is? Commands that make no sense to you. you know? yeah, like like what it all comes down to is I'm telling you right now when you're scared and crazy stuff is happening to, I mean, this would be if we were looking at it as a literal story, that would be the message. But here it's saying that every single action is actually an allegory describing what goes on in us. And for us, it's saying that the seemingly mild action of prioritizing ideas over compassion is actually very drastic that that looking back even though at the time it seems like no i'm just happily enjoying the the effects of this belief system that it, it poisons us without us realizing that's why it's so extreme in the story mm. and uh a, a thought that i had about the why is it particularly a pillar is um you know, why not a, a, a tree or, or um, you know, a rabbit or, or something? You yeah. know, why is it particularly a pillar? It's supposed to be holding something up. And the worst possible pillar I can think of, if you were extending your deck and you, you said, well, I, I want to put, you know, some pillars under there, uh, but I'm going to make them of salt. <laughs> Every time it rains, like, you know, well, that's... The good that's news completely... is we, we came in below budget. 
<laughs> but but yes, just, right. <laughs> but, yeah. but but don't don't go out there uh, on the deck yeah right. and a pillar is supposed to be supporting things and so these beliefs are supposed to be holding up a whole life of love you know that's why it's a, a pillar and not some other shape or something uh, scripture is just astonishing so what it's saying uh, as we understand it is that if we make ideas and beliefs and those kind of things, the top priority, and we differentiate between people on that basis, like you're bad because you don't think the way I think, you know, uh, you're bad because you have a different understanding than, than mine. Uh, when that's the priority, instead of love and compassion and good actions, then those ideas become divisive and spiritually dead. So it finally makes me realize that, that God is like weeping when, when Lot's wife turns to a pillar of salt. It's the opposite of like striking her from heaven, you know? Right. The striking her from heaven. And you know why? You know why it's so such a uh, travesty to put to, to go lead with ideas rather than with love and charity? It's because you never actually lead with ideas. I mean, Swedenborg was very surprised to learn and being a very intellectual guy <laughs> that it's really always our motivations that drive everything. We are not, we're never just acting in a rational vacuum. There's always some reason why we love the ideas that we do and why we act right. on them. And if you're not actively putting love for others as your motivator, the self-centeredness is the motivator. So if you're just focusing on the ideas without... That's right. You're really using those ideas to justify the, the, the joys of self and the world and, and uh, the tribalistic exclusive thinking that that breeds. That's right. There's a nastiness in, inside there. Uh, that's right. Because you, can't, you might think, oh, well, no, this is the most important thing to me. No, it's always the heart that, that's leading. Uh, right. uh, and so making love and goodwill uh, the priority allows us to see past these differences and kind of contextualize it and to look for the good in one another as human beings, to see us as all in the same boat in this life in an essential way, and to find that common ground, the common humanity that we all share. Yeah, and you are not going to avoid having differences in beliefs. I'm thinking here of religious <laughs> beliefs, right? Yeah. Because that's historically been a big deal. Um, and right now in the world, you have tons of differing religious beliefs. However, there are some people for whom those differences in beliefs, it means war. But there's a, I'd say a right. larger proportion of the population that, that knows that, we, that they believe something different than people of the next religion, but it doesn't make them hate those people. They can have that coexist. And the same thing applies with politics and with engineering, all kinds of things. If the beliefs, the beliefs are always going to be different, and that's fine, and that's good. That, that's what keeps ideas fresh. It's what keeps the human race learning and growing. If the beliefs are subservient to love, if we're differing in beliefs but united in our desire, if everyone is trying to act as much as they can from the desire to make things better for everyone, then they can differ without being divisive in this toxic way. We can still cooperate and find solutions. And it's, it's not that you could never have one idea win out over the other, but the tone and the meaning and the effect and the intent changes and allows this actual harmony mm. of human beings, even when we have differing ideas. And we actually- That's so awesome. Yeah, we did a show about it. That's how awesome we thought it was uh, called Overcoming Divisiveness. Check out that show if you want to see more. Now that we've got 
our setup set up for what this story is and what it means. Let's dig in deeper uh, and plant three seeds. Welcome to Three Seeds. This is where we're going to, since we prepared the soil of our minds with an overall understanding of what we're talking about, here's three ideas within that that we, we're going to give you and give you some thoughts on, but with the hope that you know they'll grow into, into new insights and into ways of living uh, in you. So let's see what we can do here. This first seed uh, has to do with doctrine. And Swedenborg uses that term, so we'll be using it here to describe beliefs of any kind. So these could be religious beliefs, political beliefs, philosophical beliefs, so on and so on and so on, that, that we hold. And how beliefs have to be subservient to love and they have to be applied to life. How many times mm. are people arguing about things and, and saying, this is how you have to do it, but they don't even do, do it like they say they're supposed to do it. Right, this right. Secrets of Heaven 2417 is talking directly about this story in the Bible. Don't look back behind you means that Lot was not to look to doctrine. As can be seen from the symbolism of looking back behind him when the city was behind him and the mountain was in front. Remember, mm. he being doctrine, the mountain being love. A city symbolizes, oh, why do I need to say that? <laughs> Just like, as I always say, <laughs> that we're here to really explain these things. You could never, oh, he says that exact thing in the next sentence. <laughs> a city symbolizes doctrine, but a mountain symbolizes love and charity. Anyone can see that these words, looking back behind oneself, contain some divine secret, one that lies too deeply hidden to detect. And I think what Swedenborg is saying here is basically what we're talking about in the show. The story doesn't make sense without yes. something deeper, you know? This, the outrage you and I were expressing earlier in this episode, Swedenborg is expressing a couple hundred years ago. Look what he says here. Looking behind us, after all, does not appear to be any sort of crime. But it yeah. is so weighty that the text says he would escape on his soul, consult his eternal welfare, by not looking back behind him. Just yeah, really, like, you're going to be saved or condemned on the basis of which way your face is turning or something. It makes no sense. This, the scales of justice, the punishment and the crime do not seem to sink here. So what yeah. does it mean? That How can we rectify this through meaning? There are two kinds of doctrine. One teaches about love and charity, the other about faith. No church mm. of the Lord's in its beginning possesses or loves any doctrine, but one that teaches love for others, because this has to do with the way we live. If you think about new religious movements, when they start, they always, well, oh, I'll make broad generalizations here, but generally for a new religious movement to be successful, it has to be preaching some kind of radical love in life. Right. Right. It makes right. sense. That would be attractive. Right. Because now it would be drawn to that. You can have religious systems that have been around for a long time and have people who are, have had generations of their family in them or they're historically attached to them. And you get people who have loyalty to ideas or to doctrine, right? Christianity. Yeah, even, even just mere traditions, you know, just because right. we've always done it that way or, or yeah, that's right. Yeah. Somehow but it can get lost along the way. Uh, that's, that's a great point. Traditions just as well as, as ideas. But if you're starting, like when Christianity was starting, it wasn't coming in and saying, look at this. I'm leading with these traditions and I'm leading with the, this set of <laughs> beliefs. 
it was attractive because it was this radically loving way of living and of thinking about your enemies and and, and acting uh, with love even towards people who hate you. That that is got to be that's how it starts because there is this longing in people to to work with this love, and so that's why you need to have this for new religious movements. But what happens to them? The church gradually turns aside from this doctrine, though, until it starts to despise and finally reject it. After that, it acknowledges no other doctrine than what is called the doctrine of faith. When it separates faith from neighborly love, doctrine enters into conspiracy with an evil way of life. Mm. Conspiracy, right. Because then it starts to become this shield for living in this negative way. People who accept only the doctrine of faith do not realize that charity for their neighbor is anything more than giving what they have to others and taking pity on everyone since they call everyone their neighbor without regard for differences. So just like a superficial kind of, I'll check the boxes, you know, I'll give this little monetary donation, and then I don't really have to worry about how I think about the people I interact with in my life. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. The, The truth is that charity is absolutely everything good in us. Everything good that touches our heart, everything good that we feel zeal for, everything good that we do in our life. Our neighbor is everything good in other people that touches our heart. Consequently, People who display goodness are our neighbor with all kinds of distinctions. We cannot live a life of any good unless charity for our neighbor is what motivates us. Charity is what goodness looks to, and charity is what goodness requires. And Curtis, an interesting confirmation of what you were saying um, is that in the early Christian church, part of what was so striking about it was that slaves and free people rich and poor, even shockingly male and female, were associating together as equals in mutual love. And this was astonishing, to, like they'd never been in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a group like that, in, in a room full of people where those people were together, sharing love and food and, and you know, fellowship together. Uh, so it just confirms what you were saying. That's how it began. And then interesting to fast forward a couple of thousand years, and there's a a lot of, um, you know, tension between different denominations and all that. Absolutely. That's that's what grabs people to say, oh, I'm going to leave my old life behind and live like you say, because, wow, I never thought people could be this nice to each other. And that's what what the the whole appeal of Jesus' message was as well. So that's a great point. All right. So... If you guys want to dive more into that, uh, uh, particularly what Swedenborg was saying about how to wisely love the neighbor in a long-term way, uh, according to circumstances, how to practice charity in a meaningful way, rather than just uh, as a sort of a check-in-the-box thing, we did a show called Should We Love Everyone the Same? It was a News from Heaven episode. We also did a Swedenborg in Life called How to Love. So there's a seed for you, mm. and let's, uh, let's, let's plant another one. Okay, how about this? Uh, Let's look a little more deeply into what the warning exactly, you know, here's this dreadful warning on your soul, you know, pay attention to this, don't turn in the wrong direction. Uh, This is Secrets of Heaven 2454. Looking back behind him, this is about Lot, means looking back toward doctrine, a matter of truth, and not toward a life in accord with doctrine, a matter of goodness. What is less important is said to be behind him, and what is more important is described as being in front of him. Looking back behind him, then, is looking toward truth, which relates to doctrine rather than toward goodness. 
which relates to a life in accord with doctrine. This symbolism is quite plain from the Lord's words in Luke. Oh, well, we've been in Genesis at the beginning of the Old Testament. Now we've jumped into the four Gospels in the New Testament. So what's this quote right. here? Here's Luke, where the Lord says about the last days of the church, or the close of the age, quote, on that day, so here's more weirdness for you, okay, just as a heads up, people who are on top of their house and whose belongings are in the house are not to go down to take those things, and people who are in the field should not turn back to behind them. Remember Lot's wife, it says in Luke. You know, that's a quote from Luke. Remember Lot's wife. According to the okay. inner meaning, Swedenborg continues, being on top of the house is having goodness, a house being goodness. And the belongings or vessels in the house are true ideas that contain something good, truth being a vessel for goodness. Going down to take them clearly is turning away from goodness toward truth, since goodness is higher because it's more important, and truth is lower because it's less important. So shocking to say that truth is less important than love. But right. what a great message. The symbolism of turning back to what was behind them symbolizes turning our back on goodness to gaze. And that's the important part, turning your back on goodness. It, it, it's not just right. shifting priorities a little bit. It's just like, forget that compassion stuff, you know, to gaze in the, oh, look at that beautiful doctrine right there. Gaze in the direction of doctrine. Accordingly, since doctrine is symbolized by Lot's wife, the passage adds the word, remember Lot's wife. The mountains they were to flee into, as we've already heard, our love for the Lord and consequently charity for our neighbor. Truth is said to turn its back on goodness and gaze in the direction of doctrine when no one any longer takes to heart what kind of life a person in the church lives, but only what kind of doctrine the person holds. When we disconnect doctrine from life... Isn't it beautiful? It's just incredibly clear, I think. When we disconnect doctrine from life, we destroy goodness, which is part and parcel of life. And as a result, we also destroy truth, which is part and parcel of doctrine. That is, we turn it into a pillar of salt, something lifeless, something, you know, useless. Uh, that's what happens. Right when we make doctrine and everything. So is that relevant? Is, is that something that we should be thinking about? Uh, the Lot's wife is something that happened thousands of years ago, but that kind of hits close to home. Right. Well, and, and two, two thoughts occurred to me from, from that number that you were reading. First of all, with that, um, that uh, the description that you gave of what it's like when somebody doesn't have, but just looks at doctrine versus charity and to say, you've got a religious organization or whatever, kind of institution about philosophy doesn't care what the person's life is like, doesn't care if you're being a good person, just as long as mm. you check certain doctrinal boxes, then you develop this, this monstrosity because you say, no, it's all right. Well, I'm fine. We're fine. Our actions are fine because we're within this doctrinal box and you eliminate the ability mm. of that doctrinal box to, to actually foster genuine goodness and charity um, then it becomes just a shuttle for cruelty and revenge and everything like that. Rather, and but yet the people who are in it think, "Oh, we're being good because we we have this doctrine." It just causes a lot of problems. And then I was thinking, and I about, love the fact. 
I love the fact that Swedenborg also threw in there an extra bonus that this other New Testament passage is so weird about, hey, when, you know, when bad things go down, don't go downstairs and grab your vessels, you know, just like run. What does that mean? And there again, same kind of meaning. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's obviously, it's got to be allegory because it's so strange coming out of Jesus. And that, that was the other thing I was going to say is if Jesus had, so Jesus was this mix right, of saying really touching, loving things and doing really touching, loving things and saying yes. really weird things. And right. <laughs> think, like, like the house, you know, you've got him saying like, yeah, don't, don't come off your house, you know, that, I mean, don't take the stuff off your roof. If he had only been saying that stuff, you know, would it have started this, uh, this huge movement in the mm. world? But people came for the love, right? They came for the healing, and they came for the, yeah. the the teachings that you could understand. And but I I think you know if he had just led with yeah I'm I'm Jesus and my main message is don't get stuff off your roof. You know it never would have gained ground. It never would have gained followers. So it's just this fascinating mix that he is there. He and was loving even and those healing. Things. Go ahead. Right. He he was loving and healing to to Greeks, Syrophoenicians. You know, like it didn't matter whether you were part of the in-group of the religion or, or something. I mean, you know, he, he occasionally says things about that, but he'll be saying that to some woman from Samaria, you know, uh, like he, he was an equal opportunity uh, source of love. Totally, totally. All right, so those are two seeds. Let's plant one more here, okay. and the garden in our mind will be complete or, or be ready to, to bloom. The inspiration for our life and actions is different before and then after we've been spiritually reborn. And we've taken this from mm. a number of numbers in Secrets of Heaven with that, that string together to make this cool point. When people are being reborn, they learn truth for the sake of goodness. And this we're getting here into the dynamic between truth and goodness, because even though it sounds like, what is this? This is strange. It's such a key thing for us to understand. It permeates Swedenborg's work. It's this huge, it is like the mm. main thing in our spiritual development, even though we don't walk around thinking about it, but it's there because they desire truth as a means to goodness. When the process of rebirth is complete, though, they act on both truth and goodness. Having reached this stage, they ought not to return to the previous one. If they did, they would use truth to debate the goodness in which they live, corrupting their state. All debate oh, ends if you, when we reach if a you launch. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just it's just striking that if you launch into a debate about something, you know what I mean? Like if you're doing something good, I, I, doesn't that happen to Jesus again and again when he's healing on the Sabbath and Pharisees say, well, wait, why are you doing that on the Sabbath? Shouldn't you do that on a different day of the week? And, you know, all of a sudden you're into a debate and and it, it harms that goodness. Well, that's that's such a great example that that's a really living example of this, that, that Jesus is, is healing somebody on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are saying, not really caring about the, the good that's done that this person is healed, but like, wait a second, was that on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. On the Sabbath. <laughs> what about the rules? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think as far as like us and this Zoom thing, we just got to barge in and interrupt each other and know that we love each other and that we'll get through that's it. Right. So no worries at all. Um, and okay. So, uh, I do you want to pick so up at all debate ends then? 
Yeah, it just seems like we could unpack so much stuff about it, like about the nature of it. Swedenborg goes on and on about like, okay, it's good. You have to think critically about things, right? And, and he's really against just take this on blind faith and don't examine it. But there is a point at which entertaining debate about something is just an invitation to mess it up. I think we sort of see this in society where we try to keep this open discussion about things, but there are certain viewpoints that are, are so destructive that it's like, well, we can't even, even letting those get a voice can cause damage mm. and inspire people to harm each other. So it's like this, there's a certain point at which you've got to say, we need to go forward with this. And I think of a, a benign or, or a more benign way to just to think about it is let's say you're, you're in a business and you develop a strategic plan and you say, this is where we're going to go to get these results. You, you've got to hash it out in the beginning. You've got to get what you feel like is a really good plan right. and you can tweak some, but if at every step of the way, you're trying to retool the thing and saying, does this work? Does that not work? Mm. You're going to be so slowed down. You're never going to get where you need to go. There's a point at which you need to say, uh, let's, we've got to move forward in this and, and try to be discriminating about this. This criticism is not actually trying to serve the whole. So it's, and again, we could do a couple of shows in a row on that, but I just, I wanted to get that in there. That's great. Okay. All debate ends as it should. Okay. Yeah. When does it end? When we reach a stage in which we will, what is true and good. We want it rather than we're being told to do it. At that point, we base our thoughts and deeds on our will and so on conscience, not on our intellect as we did before. If we resort to intellect again, we fall prey to trials in which we fail. While we are being reborn, we live by the truth, not out of any emotional response to truth, but out of obedience. So this is when we're starting because so it has been commanded. Like we know, okay, we got to change something or take some advice to heart, but it's just not always fun. It's not always, we're compelling ourselves at times. Later though, once we have been reborn, we do good because we want to, and therefore out of love. And I think you get mm. flashes of it when I definitely, there's times when I'm feeling like, I know I shouldn't think this way or act this way. Okay. I won't. But there's other times when you just genuinely feel like, of course, I wouldn't want to do something that can harm someone because you have this sense right. of how valuable everyone is and happiness is. It's much more fun to be in that second state when, when you can get glimpses of it. The word draws a strict, strict distinction between these two states in a person because we cannot be in both at once. On achieving the latter state in which we act out of genuine desire, we are no longer allowed to look back and do good at the urging of truth because the Lord is then influencing the good in us and is leading us by means of that good. If we were to look back or do good at the urging of truth, we would be acting on our own. People who act on truth are leading themselves, whereas people who act on goodness are being led by the Lord. Truth unites wow, the goodness. Wow, can I just interject there? That yeah. Please do. Sorry. I may I just interject there that the, uh, isn't that amazing that hasn't come out so far in this show, but that this is the difference that turning around is the difference between being led by the Lord by something higher, as opposed to just leading yourself. I think that's a really awesome, awesome point. And so that again, underscores why that's so dangerous to turn back, why you turn into a pillar of salt if you turn back. That's you're right. You're absolutely right that we we should stop and plant a flag in that point, because um, goodness is coming more directly out of the Lord. I, I'm thinking of a passage where Swedenborg says that when we are moved by compassion, you know, where that's the Lord inspiring us directly to help someone, 
That right. that's, that's actually almost like more like the Lord is taking the wheel there. So truth united to goodness always holds within it a longing to do good and in the process to bind itself more closely to goodness. When each longs to unite with the other, goodness with truth and truth with goodness, they face each other. But when truth severs itself from goodness, they turn their backs and look away from each other. And you may think, wow, we've really strayed from our pillar of salt. This is symbolized by the transformation of Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. Awesome. That's what it's talking about. That, that, this is what the story is actually about. It's not about God punishing somebody. It's about God trying to save us from the damage we'll do to ourselves if we go for this love of self-based idea war rather than love where ideas are the means to help the human race. And uh, I want to add in a spirit of compassion that uh, the, the whole time we're on this planet, we're in this process of rebirth, hopefully. And so we'll fluctuate back and forth in our motivation. You know, we, we don't, as you were just saying, experience a pure state. Uh, so kind of cycling back and forth between these things is, is normal, but it's beautiful to sort of know where we're going and, and what that goal is that we're aiming for and just to appreciate it when we're in that state of, of love and, and when you're in the zone. Absolutely. Yep. And I, I think, yeah, that we're, we're really just looking to, in this world, start to try to make an effort. That's what it's, yeah, we're not going to be able to expect <laughs> results or, or, Oh, I'm not, I'm, did I turn back here? If, if we're caring about this stuff and wanting, I think that's all that that's necessary. Um, so, and with rebirth, we even, as we do progress, you know, in, uh, beginning in this world, then even into the, the life after death, as Swedenborg describes it, we even get this upgraded conscience or sense of right and wrong, which is a good conscience instead of a right conscience, which is an interesting distinction. And we did a show about it called conscience, how to build heaven in your mind. So check that out. That's a lot. That's a lot of information. Why don't we take a moment here to let the, that, the dirt settle and, and start to let this grow in ourselves. All right. So let's, let's get out of the mind a little bit and get into the heart. So with all this stuff floating around intellectually, let's look at a, a visual representation of love. So when we start to feel this pull to make ideas more important than love, remember that God is calling in this story for us to flee to the mountains, go to the mountains. So that what that really means is go to this higher love. But there is this, if you actually look at a mountain, it's so amazing. It's so impactful emotionally. So I think it's cool to marry that idea of going to higher love with an image of the mountain. And then we can just, we're going to look at some images of mountains here and just think about when things are getting hard and confusing in our life. That's the most important time to look up to the mountains and let love guide what we're trying to do. Mm. So let's just look at these images of love and see where that pulls us.
so cool to think about that the awe-inspiring sight of mountains can have an even deeper layer of meaning and experience to it and can be united to something like love because it feels like they should have something to do with love in the first place. Oh. So hopefully that's helping all of you with uh, you know things starting to germinate and, and you'll have many reflections to come on it. Overall, though, with everything we've learned today, I'd love to just get a little recap. Jonathan, what, what do you think, what's the takeaway that we should be pulling for ourselves today? Uh, it's been a lot to think about. Um, one thing I'm taking away is that so often scripture can sort of derail you into thinking that God is angry and destructive and it seems unfair. And this is yet another one of those stories. But I love the fact that when you dig into it, you see the mercy and the compassion. I, I even realize in a way this story like wants to be a pillar for our spiritual lives and it turns into salt when you think about uh, God being angry or you don't realize it's about the primacy of love. What could be you know, more fundamental than that? It's that love, as important as truth is, as important as ideas and beliefs are, and they're huge and vitally important, but if love doesn't win the day, it can go south in a, in a hurry. I think that's what this story is really all about. I love it. Don't, don't let the story of Lot's wife turn into a pillar of salt. You know, it's meant to be used to inspire <laughs> us to, to live with love. So, everyone, thanks so much for taking this journey with us. We really appreciate it. Like and subscribe if you don't mind. Uh, that's going to help other people who may be looking for an explanation to this story, who maybe were disturbed by it in the past to find this video and hopefully get something good uh, to, to add to their options of interpretation. Uh, we're going to give a, a quick break here before we come back and tell you what's going to come up next on our channel. But just for a second here, this is a nonprofit organization. The only way we can produce programming like this is by you guys contributing to us financially. Here's a little video about what you can do and why that matters. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. As a nonprofit, we depend on donor support to continue to create high quality programming. Any gift you give joins you to the central network of people in the world who make our work possible. You can deepen the significance of your gift by making it in memory or honor of someone special in your life. This could be done as a one-time gift, recurring monthly, or run as a special fundraiser for your circle of friends and family. Go to otle.causevox.com and follow the prompts to make a gift in whatever way is most meaningful for you. Your support helps the ideas in our content reach and nourish thousands of people every day around the globe. We couldn't do it without you. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through in this way, in the end, everybody wins. Cool. And thank you so much, everyone who have supported us and made this possible this far, thus far. Uh, it's great having you moving this forward along with us. And speaking of moving forward, we're going to continue to put out content this week like we do every week because we think we've got something that's, that's cool for people to know. So we want to get it out there accessible to everyone. So news from heaven this week, we've got two episodes coming out on Thursday. We've got trials are caused by the evil spirits present with us. Mm. Saturday, the inner part of heaven is more perfect. Well, how can something be more perfect? And isn't that a hierarchy sort of thing? We'll tackle that then. On Wednesday, we got a short clip, which is, does Swedenborg mention the idea of ancestors as spirit guides? And Friday, how can we strengthen our connection to angels? 
Next Monday, we'll be back with our live Q&A show, Good Question, where we'll get to go in-depth with all of you on uh, whatever you want to talk about. And then the following Monday, our Divine Design series continues with the episode, Our Bodies Connect to God's Design of the Universe. So a lot of cool stuff to look forward to. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for walking through this stuff with me. I love getting to hear your insights. It's great to have your, your presence and your thoughts. It's great to be with you, Curtis, and I love hearing uh, the way your mind works on these things. And it, it's, I enjoy so much being a part of this show. And we love having all of you out there in the audience as well. Hopefully this was something that inspired you here in this hour and will continue to feed you as you go out into the world. You know, Take it, move it forward, go to the mountains, show other people the way of the mountains. It's all good. See you soon. Swedenborg and Life Live is Curtis Childs, host and showrunner with co-host Jonathan Rose. Live stream tech and graphics by Stuart Farmer and Matthew Childs. Show writing and chat moderation by Karin Childs and Chelsea Odner. <laughs>